Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 9, Piedmont Sardinia. Welcome back, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed last week's supplemental slash full episode on Josephine. I just realized that I used both words kind of interchangeably as I was reading the script, so mea culpa, but in reality, it was essentially both. Giving a little due respect to not quite yet in our story, Empress, while also providing some personal life context for Napoleon. But for anyone who did enjoy last week's episode and became a little fonder of Josephine, to fear not, because she will be making a few more appearances throughout our story, including a few over the next couple of weeks. After all, if there's one thing we can take away from what we learned last week, it's that her impact on Napoleon's future empire was felt up to the present day. But we're going to leave Empress Josephine here for now, because as we ended the last episode, it is time for Napoleon to head off to destiny and into the pens of history's authors. So... Let's join him and his men in Nice as they get ready to march on through the Alps and into every future encyclopedia ever written. Are we ready? Good. Let's go. After Napoleon and Josephine were married on March 9, 1796, Napoleon quickly turned around and headed off to lead the now legendary Army of Italy. But as we mentioned briefly at the end of Episode 7, this army was hardly considered vitally important, let alone legendary, when the newly inaugurated directory gave Napoleon command of the fighting force. Indeed, it has been suggested that Napoleon was given the command simply as a thank you for saving our government before we even had time to sit in Tuileries on Vendemer, as well as to satiate the rising military star without having him stay in Paris. Can't be giving these confident generals any ideas, you know. The Directory also didn't plan to have Italy be a main theater to their overall strategy of winning the War of the First Coalition. Their main goal, clearly, was to concentrate on the coalition forces in western and southern Germany along the border with France. Now, it made complete logical and tactical sense. France's longest land border was with the Holy Roman Empire and Austria, which, at this point in history, is still kind of one and the same, but at the same time not really. But we'll get into that a little bit later on. Concentrating their forces on this front would, in theory, be key to winning a decisive campaign, knocking out the enemy armies, and winning the war for France. The problem was that the enemy forces were actually well led by the Austrian Archduke Charles von Habsburg, the younger brother of Emperor Francis of Austria. He was successful in defeating the French after some initial French advances, pushing them back across the Rhine. And so, by October of 1796, there were little if any territorial changes, and the Directory, which had spent so many resources in funding the so-called Rhine campaign, now found itself back to square one. Well, at least in Germany, because Napoleon was about to turn the war on its head a little further down south. Now, because the Army of Italy was seen as merely the sideshow to the Rhine campaign's main show, they were not well-equipped or even remotely well-funded. In an apocryphal story, Napoleon was forced to sell his silver-hilted saber and wager the earnings on the gambling table in order to help pay for the journey from Paris to Nice. Now, whether true or not, 
Napoleon would only be given 40,000 francs to fund his entire campaign in Italy, less than his yearly salary for an entire army. Not exactly ideal, and not exactly off to the greatest start. But Napoleon, as was so often the case throughout his entire career, was never deterred. Frustrated with the lack of resources, yes, but his confidence in how he could not only conduct but win this campaign was steadfast. Though, initially, the biggest issue he had to overcome was receiving the faith in some of the commanding officers who had yet to meet the now-famed Napoleon. Because, you see, when Napoleon arrived in Nice, many of the divisional commanders sneered at meeting him for the first time, believing that he'd, quote, won his reputation in a street riot in his command in a marriage bed. Ouch. Still, much of the doubt that some of the officers expressed in Napoleon's appointment were tempered by him having served with a few others, namely our old friend, Andre Massena. Now, I think I've mentioned a thousand times that I'm going to be doing a supplemental episode on Napoleon's future marshals of the empire, but I believe Massena entirely merits his own. First off, he was everything the revolution's new military policy embodied. A child from a lower middle class rising through the ranks based on merit rather than of noble birth, and secondly, he was probably Napoleon's most dependable field commanders, if not top three, along with Marshals Ney and Davout. But thirdly, and most importantly, he's my favorite of the Marshals. So, for that alone, be on the lookout for a future episode on General Andre Massena. Anyway, Massena and a few of the other divisional commanders knew damn well who Napoleon was. They knew that he radiated the confidence necessary to lead the campaign, they knew that he paid attention to every little detail, from inspecting the troops, to ensuring that they had sufficient supplies, to making sure that his commanding officers understood their positions of battle. He wanted his fighting force to be as prepared as was possible, given their nearly impossible situation. Well, at least from the historical military standard. But on this campaign, Napoleon was to employ much of what made him one of the greatest military commanders of all time. Understanding that they didn't have the sufficient resources, men, or financial support, as did their Rhine campaign contemporaries, Napoleon used much of what he had learned from history and in the classroom to formulate a strategy that could turn his limited army into a strategically formidable fighting force. His battle plan, as initially proposed, went something like this. In his first meetings with the divisional commanders, of which there were five, Napoleon showed them how the Savona-Kakari road led into three valleys, one of them being the strategically important Lombardy, full of rich plains that could be used to feed his army. To get there, they would have to face the Piedmontese and knock them out of the war for good. And Napoleon believed that if they could push the combined Austrian Piedmontese force eastward and take the fortifying town of Seva, it would force the Piedmontese to sue for peace, as holding their strategic stronghold would threaten their capital, Turin. Understanding that Napoleon was outmanned by over 20,000 men, he believed that speed and deception, two of his hallmark battle strategies, would be critical in securing victory in this initial phase of the campaign. As Andrew Roberts notes in his book, Napoleon, A Life, highly recommended read, by the way, and certainly a huge source material for this podcast, Napoleon's strategy was hardly novel. In fact, he had based the idea on Pierre de Bousset's Principe de la Guerre de Montagne, 1775, literally, Principles of Mountain Warfare. The strategy involved clear planning, concentration of effort, and keeping the enemy off balance. All of these core principles would be employed by Napoleon to deadly effect, and would be a later case study on the tactical brilliance of his lightning warfare. And, of course, as the name of the strategy suggests, they would have to apply them to the terrain in which they were fighting. Ever been to northern Italy? Mountains, hills, and plains. You gotta know how to fight in them. 
But Napoleon knew that in order to employ this strategy, he needed to not only win over the average soldier, but to improve the impoverished state of the entire army. He did this by starting from the very top, reorganizing the leadership structure, and requesting nearly 3 million francs in loans from France's finance minister in Genoa, Citizen Felpo. He also sent for the cavalry in the nearby Rhone Valley, fired munitions commanders and NCOs, and repositioned their ranks to more deserving men in other battalions, believing it was of utmost importance to establish a system of equality among the soldiers to create the cohesion necessary for undertaking a campaign of this magnitude. Napoleon would also write over 800 letters back to Paris, making sure that he was in the Directory's ear on a near daily basis so that they could provide much of what Napoleon requested. They might have thought the Italian campaign a sideshow, but Napoleon was going to make sure that the Directory was at least paying attention to it. And this was especially true when it came to the treatment of the average soldier. When he arrived in Nice to take command of the army, most of the men didn't even have shoes and were stocked with little food. Many of them hadn't been paid in months. And it's honestly a near miracle that they didn't mutiny before their generals arrived. And the thing was, most generals faced this issue with their troops constantly, but many simply didn't care. It was just the reality of war, especially a war having raged now for years in a country that really hadn't improved financially since the start of the revolution. But Napoleon, having faced such conditions before himself early in his military career, knew that there was nothing more dangerous to an army than that of a hungry soldier let alone thousands of them. It would have been physically impossible to carry on any military advance with men who, at that point, would be trying to simply survive. National loyalty be damned. His nagging of the directory paid off, though. He was able to secure 5,000 pairs of shoes for his men, and he did all he could to ensure that throughout the campaign they would be able to live off the land they conquered. Without bread, the soldier tends to an excess of violence that makes one blush for being a man, he would later write. And throughout his career, he made a concerted effort to ensure his troops had food and footwear. Because an army marches on both its feet and its stomach. And these gestures, this obvious attention to detail for the good of the common soldier, endeared himself almost immediately with his troops. On March 29, 1796, addressing his men, he told them that they would, quote, find in him a comrade, strong in the confidence of the government, proud of the esteem of patriots, and determined to acquire for the army of Italy a destiny worthy of it. He was able to relate to his men. His connection, not only with their plight, but also with the prospect of destiny, was something that made him such a great leader. He could lead his men not necessarily because he was better than them, but because he was one of them. Yet because he was able to connect so well with his soldiers, he would now be able to choose who would help him run these campaigns. He started by innovating what we now consider a chief of staff. While aide-de-camps have been prevalent throughout military history, essentially a general secretary, the chief of staff was able to not only lend a second ear to the leading general, but also to provide a buffer between him and the rest of the general staff. And Napoleon's first choice for his chief of staff? Another future marshal of France, Louis Alexandre Berthier. Berthier came from a military family as well, and he had served in the American War of Independence under General Rochambeau. He later served in the Revolutionary Wars, seeing action in Argonne and the Vendée. And despite being 15 years Napoleon's senior, he greatly respected the young general and saw in him the capacity he had to lead this campaign. And for Napoleon, the match was a perfect one. He had at his side a man with a proven military track record, a loyal French revolutionary, and a memory second only to his own. Berthier also proved to be of unparalleled efficiency in conveying Napoleon's orders. 
Even in hastily ordered commands, Berthier had the uncanny ability to translate them in a way that was able to be carried out by his subordinates. Often working over 20 hours a day, Napoleon would often comment that Berthier's written statements were read with, quote, as much relish as a novel. So to recap, Napoleon was able to, one, convince his commanding generals that he was worthy of his position regardless of how he came to acquire it. Two, he empathized with his troops by essentially showing himself off as one of their own and going to great lengths to have their grievances heard, if not addressed. And three, he was able to streamline his command structure to ensure a direct line of communication from the top brass on down to the drummer boys, doing no small part to appointing Berthier as his chief of staff. And so, with that now established, let's move on to the initial phase of the campaign itself, the Montonati campaign. At the start of April, Napoleon moved his headquarters from across the modern Franco-Italian border from Nice to Albenga, on the Gulf of Genoa in modern-day Liguria. Now, for those unfamiliar with Italian geography, Liguria is situated just south of the region of Piedmont in modern Italy, but at the time, it was a part of the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia. While the French did have a stronghold there, Piedmont was able to be supplied via the British Royal Navy by way of, ironically, Corsica. At this point, essentially a British puppet state. Piedmont was also awaiting a large Austrian force, which was hoping to retake the lost territory and push the French back across the border, securing their southern flank, and then focusing more troops up north along the Rhine, similar to what France was doing. Napoleon, again relying on his speed, reached Albenga in just a few days through the Ligurian Mountain Passes, and instructed his generals to essentially cut off the enemy Austrians between three Ligurian cities of Calcare, Altare, and Montanari. Napoleon did this because he knew that Austrian general Johann Bulyu was old and famously cautious in his battle strategies, and he wanted to exploit this in every way possible. Napoleon also knew that despite the alliance between Austria and Piedmont, both sides distrusted one another considerably, with the Austrians often looking down on their Piedmontese partners. This tension would come to play an important role in Napoleon's ability to cut the enemy in two, fighting against two disjointed units rather than a larger, united one. Napoleon would also benefit from the fact that the coalition forces didn't communicate well with one another in the literal sense. Neither really spoke a common language. In fact, many of the quote-unquote Austrian forces didn't even speak German, as the empire at the time consumed much of the modern-day Balkan states. So French, ironically enough, was used as the lingua franca between troops and commanding officers to communicate orders. Many of these orders also came directly from Vienna, oftentimes so delayed by the travel of the era that they were all but useless once they did arrive to the battlefield. Napoleon made sure that this disunity would be the catalyst for his victory. Employing what is now known as the central position in the core system, Napoleon would often take the unconventional approach of centering his army in between two opposing forces, taking one head on, knocking them out, and then focusing on the other before either side had time to meet up. This is called the strategy of the central position, and it would be employed throughout every campaign that Napoleon led, and it was why it was critical he take those three cities we mentioned earlier to establish those positions. In sending a different general to each of those cities, he also employed another novel battle strategy that is used in nearly every modern military today, the core system. The core system, from a high level, is a small army within an army. It is complete with its own cavalry, infantry, artillery, and commanding officers so as to act as an army unit all its own. The obvious benefit of the core system is that each group can act independently of the other corps, thereby allowing the smaller units to move much faster across terrain and striking quick blows on the enemy and retreating while suffering minimal casualties. 
Because the cores were also smaller, it made communication much easier within them than if it had been a traditional army unit. It also made traditional smaller fighting forces more formidable, as they were now better equipped with supporting units, i.e. cavalry and artillery, so even the minimal damage they inflicted was felt hard. Napoleon would employ the core system to historic effect in nearly all of his future campaigns, and the respect modern militaries have paid to it remain to this day. So now that we've got two of Napoleon's main battle tactics established, let's see him put them to use. In between writing letters to the Directory complaining about the state of the army, and to Josephine about how much he missed her as well as how much glory he was about to win, Napoleon was preparing to launch his assault on the combined Austria-Piedmontese forces on April 15th. Outnumbered nearly 2-1, to one, the coalition team of Austria-Piedmont decided to force the issue and began their own assault on April 10th, coming up the same pass Napoleon had hoped to use to split their lines. Now, any ordinary commanding general likely would have balked at this, his plan completely torn to shreds and sending the initiative into desperation, but Napoleon, as we've come to see, was no ordinary commanding general. The Austrians attacked the French forces near Genoa in the small Battle of Valtry, but the French made a hasty retreat down to Savona, suffering minimal casualties. The Austrians, however, were now badly split in two, and due to the lack of communication and coordination of both sets of their army, were stretched dangerously thin. Napoleon, realizing this, then went on the counterattack. On the evening of April 11th, Napoleon ordered an attack on the enemy forces at Montanati, a mountain village just northwest of Savona. While the main fighting was concentrated on the nearby redoubt of Monte Nagino, literally Mount Nagino, near Montanati, Napoleon ordered Massena to envelop their right flank through the Catabana Pass in the early morning hours of April 12th through a driving rainstorm up dangerous mountain terrain and engaged in fierce fighting with the enemy. As dawn approached, Fog covered the area, allowing for the French to regroup and gather their forces for the final envelopment. Once the fog cleared, French cannons began firing from the hills of Monte Nagino, and Massena soldiers then launched their final assault, annihilating the Austrian right flank that held vastly superior numbers. By 9.30 a.m., the battle was over, with the Austrians in full retreat, having lost their colors and over 2,500 soldiers. The French, by comparison, lost only 880. Napoleon would secure his first victory in Italy and Montanotti, but hardly his last. The Battle of Montanotti, while relatively modest in comparison to later battles in the Napoleonic campaigns, was a huge morale booster to not only Napoleon, but to his troops. Facing destitute conditions with minimal odds of victory against a vastly superior enemy force only weeks before, Napoleon's men now believed that they could continue the initiative with the momentum they had just gained. The Austrian Piedmontese forces performance would be a harbinger of things to come for many of Napoleon's opponents later on in this and subsequent campaigns. Their leaders were older and less creative than their younger opponent, they lacked creativity in their battle strategy, and they commanded multi-ethnic and multilinguistic troops which made communication difficult internally, leading to easing pickings for their French counterparts who stressed cohesion and discipline in their engagements. Then Napoleon wouldn't have to wait long for his next engagement. Because the following day, Napoleon wanted to capitalize on the momentum his army had just seized, advanced further inland from the coast, intending to capture the small hamlet of Dago, looking to further divide the Austrian and Piedmontese forces. Napoleon, again, was aided by his enemy's differing initiatives. The Austrians wanted to head east to protect the vitally important city of Milan, but the Piedmontese wanted to head west to protect their capital of Turin. Well, boy oh boy, when Napoleon smells blood in the water, he really smells blood in the water. Led by another future marshal of the empire, Pierre Agarreau, Napoleon's forces attacked the enemy at nearby Milan forcing them into a small, partly destroyed castle where they conducted a siege throughout the night. 
While the combined Austrian and Sardinian armies resisted fiercely, their situation was untenable with minimal food, water, and supplies. They capitulated the following morning, suffering only 150 casualties, but surrendering over 800 prisoners of war. They did inflict significant casualties on the French, however, with Algarro's forces losing over 700 men for a relatively small territorial gain. Napoleon later admitted that his overconfidence and impatience in wanting to destroy the enemy led to his own men losing so many. But nevertheless, he would rack up another victory and now focused on taking Dago. Dago was strategically important as its access to the main road would prevent the Austrian and Piedmontese forces from linking up with one another. Now, while the French initially took the small town relatively easily on April 14th under the command of Massena, their victory celebrations were premature. Taken to looting, debauchery, and other vices, the French were subjected to a counterattack by the Austrian forces, and it was rumored that Massena was in bed with a woman and escaped the attack in his nightshirt. The French would suffer nearly 1,500 casualties on that first day, but Massena, now facing the ire of Napoleon, would take control of the situation on April 15th. Heavily outnumbering his Austrian counterparts thanks to reinforcements brought up by Napoleon himself, the French, again, would rout the Austrians and take Dago. While the French would suffer a total of nearly 2,500 casualties over two days, it paled in comparison to the over 9,000 suffered by Austrian-led forces. Napoleon would earn his third victory in less than a week, and his men would earn a valuable lesson in discipline to not take their enemy so lightly. Because, once again, they had little time to rest on their laurels. Next up was the famous Battle of Mondavi. After General Agarro had secured another victory in the Battle of Sevo on April 16th, Napoleon was determined to drive the Piedmontese Sardinian forces as far west as possible, creating an insurmountable wedge between them and the rest of the Austrian forces east of Dago. A week after his victories in Montanari, Milmesino, and Dago, Napoleon was determined to crush the Piedmontese once and for all, taking them out of the war and focusing the rest of his campaign on Austria and driving them completely out of Italy. Want to see him do it? Okay, let's go. With the Piedmontese on the run, Napoleon was able to push the enemy armies behind the northeasterly flowing Corsiglia River. While still spring, the slushy conditions of the river's northern flank made engaging in counterattacks difficult, and so the Piedmontese settled into the small hamlet town of San Michel Mondavi, not to be confused with the town of Mondavi, which we'll be talking about in a second. While Napoleon sent three future marshals in to take care of the Piedmontese forces there, after some initial success, the tired and starving French soldiers went on a looting rampage throughout the town. This lull in their guard allowed the Piedmontese to mount a counterattack and repel the French forces out, save for a few small bridgeheads. The Piedmontese then fell back to the Alero River at Mondavi, ostensibly to create some separation between them and the French forces, who were now regrouping to plan a counterattack and keep up the pursuit. The Piedmontese, led by General Michelangelo Colli, burned their encampment and destroyed the bridges they had constructed. But in doing so, they gave away their position to Napoleon's troops, who, in the early morning hours of April 21st, then began a rapid pursuit. The following morning, Napoleon focused his troops to fix the enemy front, while leading a double envelopment led by Generals Massena and Jean-Mathieu Philibert Sourier, another future marshal. Sourier's charge would strike the Piedmontese rearguard, with Massena's men following closely behind. The speed and precision in the attack was such that it did not allow Colley's men the time necessary to form a proper defense, and they were thoroughly crushed. While the Piedmontese did have reinforcement units ready, the gaps in their line created by the panic of Colley's troops made them all but useless, and Massena's men crushed them as well. Fleeing to Mondavi, the Piedmontese, with Napoleon's men ready to fire upon the city, quickly sued for peace. Got war with France for the better part of three years, 
Napoleon and his generals nearly annihilated their army in a matter of weeks. For Napoleon, the victory was an affirmation of how a well-nuanced, creative, and innovative battle plan could be used to devastating effect against an enemy stuck in its historic ways. But given the state of his army, the resources he was allocated, and the attention given to his campaign, there's no doubt in the impressive nature of how quickly he was able to achieve total victory against the Piedmontese. Addressing his troops from the town of Charasco as he hashed out the peace terms with the Piedmontese representatives, Napoleon proclaimed, quote, Today, you equal by your services the armies of Holland and the Rhine. Devoid of everything, you supplied everything. You have won battles without guns, passed rivers without bridges, accomplished forced marches without shoes, bivouacked without brandy, and often without bread. Today, you are amply provided for. As we mentioned before, he was genuinely concerned for their well-being, but he also wanted to ensure that there was a sense of order among his conquering troops. He hated the idea of having a marauding army pillaging local towns, giving the residents a reason to rise up and revolt against the French occupation. He wanted his men to live off the land, sure, and that would be a defining characteristic of his military strategy as he employed his speedy advances, but he didn't want to give the impression that his men would become barbarians, all because they crushed their enemies in battle. They were there to spread revolutionary ideals, not punish an already occupied citizenry. So Napoleon put in strict edicts that would call for punishments for any soldiers caught looting the local populace and to have any officer shot should they allow it under their command. But as we'll come to see, while Napoleon didn't take kindly to his soldiers looting from the average citizen, he had little problem looting some of the most valuable artifacts his conquered lands had to offer. But in any event, Napoleon was the victorious general, and he set out to begin negotiating his terms of surrender with the Piedmontese almost immediately in the nearby city of Jarasco. When the Piedmontese initially stalled their negotiations, refusing to hand over the amount of forts he requested in their peace talks, Napoleon, in a classic bluff to force their hand, threatened, quote, Gentlemen, I give you notice that the general attack is ordered for two o'clock, and if I am not assured that the fortress of Connie will be placed in my hands before the end of the day, this attack will not be delayed for a moment. The Piedmontese signed the terms of the armistice immediately. The communes of Tortona, Alessandra, Coni, and Seva, along with the route to Valence and the territories between the Coni and Stura and the Tanaro and Po rivers, were all handed over to the French as part of the deal. Additionally, the French were given free passage throughout the Piedmontese territory without interference in exchange for King Victor Amadeus III keeping his throne, though, in essence, as a puppet of the French government. Speaking of which, Napoleon was shrewd in keeping these negotiations secret from the Directory until they were finalized. As he saw it, he didn't want a bunch of lawyers interfering with military negotiations, and likely taking away from his personal glory, in which he had achieved in a matter of weeks, something these lawyers couldn't accomplish in three years. But they were still his bosses, so he sent Joachim Murat back to Paris to tell the news of their victory and peace terms, while ensuring that they would return with 15 million francs worth of bouillon from Piedmont and nearby Genoa, always chock full of cash, to offset their assured ire of him having negotiated terms without their consent. The Directory, for their part, knew that they too were in a precarious situation here. On the one hand, they were pleasantly surprised at the quick victory Napoleon had secured to shore up their immediate southern flank, now facing only the Austrian contingent left in northern Italy. But on the other hand, they knew that the public relations Napoleon would soon receive for this quick victory could also spell their own demise, so they did little to check Napoleon's clear violation of authority. And to be quite frank, 
there was little they could do. Their battles on the Rhine were still stalling, so news of a victory of any kind was welcome news, even if tepid. While the news of the Piedmontese capitulation was being sent back north to Paris, Napoleon enjoyed a few celebrations with his soldiers and defeated foes. He drank fine wine, partied lavishly long into the evening, and was finally able to pay many of his soldiers with the first hard currency they had seen in months. He lamented the dead, he complimented the bravery of his enemies, and he began work for the second half of his campaign. Because while Piedmont Sardinia proved to be a quick, if bloody, offensive, he knew that the real enemy lay to the east. The Austrians, and all the spoils, riches, and glory that came with their defeat were just across the River Po. So just as the hangover began to dissipate, Napoleon began his plans to take out the second major ally of the First Coalition just as April was turning to May. His plan? To defeat not only the awaiting Austrians, but to effectively end the War of the First Coalition. Thank you.